Good morning, good morning. Welcome. Uh, why don't you go ahead and grab a seat here and we'll get started. Okay. My pocket's emptied here. Um, all right, well, uh, good morning again and welcome to the firehouse. Uh, my name's Rich. I'm one of the pastors here and just uh, glad that you chose to join us this morning. Um, we are in a series right now going through the Gospel of Mark. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12. Um, if you if you have a Bible, feel free to turn there. If you uh, need a Bible, there's some either under your feet or in front of you or behind you or somewhere. But we're uh, in the house Bible here this morning. Uh, we're going to be on page 1004. 1004. So... Um, Anyways, uh, boy, I think uh, that marriage conference we went to, uh, how many of you, let me see, how many here survived the marriage conference? A few survivors, yeah, it was pretty good. Oh, yeah. That's good, uh-huh, all right. Megan, I see. Um, uh, let's see, so anyways, it was, uh, you know, Jeremy shared a little about it there, but I was, you know, after like the first point or two, I was just done. I was convicted, ready to come home, and you know, got enough to work on for the rest of the year. And he, he only had 28 points, 29 points, something like that by the time the dust settled. So it was a good time. It was an encouraging, convicting, refreshing time. But uh, no, it was, it was a blessing. I think if you've ever heard Mark Darling speak, you know, he's just a, a real on fire, excited, audacious communicator. So it was, a, it was an encouraging time. It was a great conference. Um, also, just to reiterate what Jeff had mentioned, we have our softball season kicks open Monday night. Yes, it's, it's probably even a bigger deal than waiting for the Rocky season to kick off. You know, it's a it's a big deal. Um, we heard I heard the scrimmage. I didn't get to make it to the scrimmage on uh, Thursday night, but I heard it was extremely close. Right? I heard it was uh, very very close. So we're excited when our two church teams face each other in a couple weeks. There, we will hopefully all. The goal is to have fun. Together together, come together as a church to cheer both teams on, regardless of the scoreboard or anything like that, but uh, no, I, I heard it wasn't as close as it could have been, but um, anyway, it's good to, good to have practice. Um, we're going to go ahead and pray here um, before we get started, but I do want to start off with a question here, and then we'll pray. This morning in Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at, um, you know, there's really a series of tough questions that Jesus uh, handled in Mark chapter 12. And and that's really going to be the theme of this morning is, um, you know, what can we learn from Jesus as he handled these and processed these tough questions. And so I wanted to start off with a, a question for you, just in the spirit of tough questions, I guess. And I've heard this question probably several times in the last several months. And so it's out there, it's real. You may or may not have heard it, depending on what circles you're running in here. But um, the question is this, and it, and it really relates to, um, relates to your Bible in general here. But um, the question is, do you believe that everything in this Bible is meant to be taken literally? Do you believe that everything in this book, the Word of God, is meant to be taken literally? Yes, no, maybe so. How many of you think that, yes, everything in here is meant to be taken literally? Okay. How many of you think everything in here is not meant to be taken literally? 
How many of you are just confused by the question? Um, no, there's a few. No, just joking. But, well, you know, I think in some ways it's kind of a trick question. Um, and I think the reality is, as we get started here, uh, you'll see right off the bat, Mark chapter 12, verse 1, says this. Then he began to teach them in parables. Um, so he goes on to teach this parable. Now, what is a parable? A parable is a lesson that you learn from a word, picture, a story. When we look at a parable, did a parable literally happen? No. And so what, what do we find out? Is everything in this meant to be taken literally? No. Is everything in this book true? Yes. That's the answer I want to get. Everything in here is true. Is everything in here meant to be taken literally? No. There are some things that are here that are, are parables. There are some things in here that are history. There are some things that in here are, are prophecy. And there are some things in here that are meant to be taken very literally. And, and we have to be careful. Sometimes people will ask that question. Well, is it literal? Well, yes, some of it is very literal. And it, you to do exactly what it says. And other things are uh, metaphors and parables. And you know one of the best ways to figure out what it, what it is that you're reading is is look at the context. This morning, this, this first thing starts off with, then he began to speak to them in parables. It's a hint, it's a clue of how we should understand the information that is true in here. Though it is not all literal. So we, we want to make sure people don't throw us strict questions and curveballs because then they can, you know, do things, lead us places in our thinking that we wouldn't end up otherwise. But anyways... Everything in this book is true. And um, we're going to pray and we're going to jump into Mark chapter 12. Lord Jesus, we do just thank you for this morning, uh, this wonderful weekend. God, thank you for blessing the marriage conference, for challenging and and convicting and renewing and encouraging my marriage. And and our marriage is up there, Lord. It was a wonderful time. And I just pray you'd help us all to put into action, to, to have truth understood be applied in our life, Lord God. And God, this morning as we look at Mark chapter 12, I just pray you would unfold your scriptures to us. I pray that you would teach us things that you want us to learn this morning. Open our eyes, open our ears to hear from you. Um, No matter where we're at in life, no matter where we're at in our our journey of faith here, God, I pray you'd meet us here. Speak to us, encourage us, and bless us. We just pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so... um, Mark chapter 12 here. Um, we'll start again with the first verse. We're just going to read this parable, parable, verses 1 through 12. So, if you want to read along with me here. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. They still sent an, uh, he still sent another, or he sent another still, or whatever that says. He, still, he sent still another. That they, and, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So we're going to take a look at this parable here and um, just try to see what we can understand from this. Again, um, everything in the Bible is true and there's a way that you can apply it to your life. Some of it indirectly, some of it directly. Um, but let's just go through and try to understand the meaning of this parable and what we might apply to our lives here. And let me see, am I pushing button number two, Kent? Is that the one? Uh, one of these is the self-destruct button. I don't want to hit that one. Uh, we'll try two and see what happens. E, two. Does that do it? All right, well, if not, every time I go like this, you can do it there. Okay, <clears throat> so here's the question for us. We try to understand this parable and what Jesus intended when he told it. Obviously, it had certain connotations that were uh, being spoken to those people right there uh, as Jesus was speaking. But yet, there's some things that I think we can learn and apply to our lives. There's probably many things. We're only, only going to look at two of them here um, from this parable. But who is the owner in this parable? The owner of the vineyard. Who is that? Who does it represent? God, God the Father, God. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Second one. Who are the who were the servants that the owner sent to check on, to talk to the the landlord or the prophets? God's servants, the prophets. He sent them to speak to his people that were to manage his vineyard. Um, and who were the tenants, the the farmers? <clears throat> Good question. Well, at the time and in the context, the, the tenants were the nation of Israel. God had said, here you go, take care of this. Um, and it was the, the people of Israel were the tenants. And then he sent, after they, you know, uh, dealt with all of his servants except for one, he sent his son. Who's the son? Jesus. Jesus was the son that uh, in this and, and the son of God that came into this world to check up on the vineyard. Um, next question I have here is, you know, what, what are the implications of this parable? Jesus is telling us, he's telling them to this people, what, what is he implying here? What's he saying is going to happen? Jesus is basically telling them, hey, here's the deal. God has given you this vineyard to be stewards of, to bear the fruit of, and he sent his messengers to kind of check up on you. They've been killed. He sent his son, and you know what you're going to do to his son? You're going to reject him and you're going to kill him. And he quoted from the Old Testament a scripture that would have been well known as a passage about the Messiah, about the Christ. They knew that. And he's saying, this is me who's going to be rejected. But God is going to use me as the cornerstone. And, and the implications were, he was basically in some ways prophesying to them about what they were going to do just in a matter of days is when this um, was playing out. And so, but some of the, there's one practical thing I want to pull out of that is, um, is this, you know, um, if they rejected and persecuted our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, what do you think this world is going to do to us? The same, the same. And you know, um, I have got a few verses just to remind us of this, to make sure we're sober about this. But so Jesus told this parable. It's on the week um, before he is crucified, and you know, even a couple days later, maybe after he answered these tough questions, he was talking to his disciples on the side, and he said some things to them like this: John 15. 
Remember the words I spoke to you. This is 15, 20, and 21. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And he goes on to say in John chapter 16, you know, this is when he's getting ready to be betrayed and go to the cross that, that very night. And he said this to his disciples, All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they've not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. Lastly, he ends that passage of John 16. Uh, well, he ends that by telling his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the things I see here is that Jesus came and he was persecuted just like he said. He died, they killed him, they threw him out of the vineyard, you know, he um, Outside even of the city of Jerusalem, they killed him. And, um, but he says this, Hey, look, if you're going to follow me, guess what? If they did this to me, your leader, your master, they're going to do this to you. And I want to warn you about it. I don't want it to catch you by surprise. Uh, and he was very clear, If you're going to follow me, you will be persecuted. And I think we need to... We need to be sober about that. We need to be aware of that. You know, I think that just one action item would be we must pray to be ready for what lies ahead for us as Christians. You know, in some ways our experience as as Christians in the United States is very different than many Christians throughout the world. And there's places where, you know, probably uh, by the time this is done, there'll be several people who've died for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because they did not deny their faith in Him. Probably this, this morning throughout the world, there'll be people that are killed because of the, the faith that we hold true to, the faith that we can be sometimes flipping about. Someone will die for um, within the hour. And, and, and we've been blessed to not have that be our case in the United States here, but um, I get a sense the tides are turning. There's some things that uh, this country was founded upon that have eroded away. There's some things that this country was founded upon that are becoming controversial if you hold to them being true today. We must be aware. We must be ready. We must pray that it does not catch us by surprise. I think about when uh, persecution first broke out in the first century church. And uh, you, you can read Acts chapter 7 and 8. And it happened, all of it happened, all the tide turned in one day. And they took Stephen and they killed him. And it said that day persecution broke out in Jerusalem and the church was scattered. And it could all happen in a day, you guys. It could all happen so quickly. We need to be ready. We need to have a perspective. Sometimes we can have all these trivial, you know, gossipy things about this person and problems with that and criticisms about them. But when that day comes and the persecution hits us, it'll be a different perspective. It'll probably be good for us to be ready for that. Jesus said, um, I've warned you. I want you to be ready. And so, anyways, that's one application we have here. The second one I have from this parable just for us to think about is... You know, a couple more questions. What is the vineyard in the parable? I believe the vineyard is is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was first given to the people of God, the nation of Israel. But then he says, you know, I'm going to kill those and I'm going to give it to others. Who are the others that the vineyard will be given to? The Gentiles. The Christians. People like you and I. That kingdom was given to them. And they rejected it. And they rejected the king. And he said, you know what? I'm going to give this vineyard to someone else. And 
you know, and then what, what do you think? What do you think the fruit is He wants for us from us as tenants? What do you think God expects from us as the tenants of His vineyard? Well, there's there's a couple things of fruit uh, that are, are very clear, and I think this is what is referring to in general. But one is um, they have what, yeah, the fruit of the spirit is one we all know in Galatians there. Um, but also the fruit of the spirit. I think the fruit of the spirit just lists nine specific things that are fruit of Christ likeness. Christ likeness is God wants us to bear the fruit of becoming like Him. Throughout scriptures, it said He wants to conform us into the image of His Son. We need to be bearing fruit of growing more like Christ. How are you doing in growing more like Christ? Have you been growing? Been losing ground in some areas and gaining them in others? God expects fruit from our lives, the fruit of becoming more like His Son. He also expects the fruit, the fruit of the harvest. Um, this is um, a verse here where I think directly relates as well, but um, it's, it says... Uh, in John 4, he's talking about the fruit of the harvest, and the harvesters are working, and some reap, and some sow. And he says, the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. We've been given the vineyard. We're to bear Christ-like character, and we're to bring people to Christ. And that's what he expects from us as tenants. And when he returns, that is what he's going to be looking for. We just need to make sure, even in the midst, if things get rough, of persecution and things God still wants us to be Christ-like and to be leading people to Christ. And some would even say, um, more people get saved. Christianity spreads faster in the middle of being persecuted, you know, just like it did in the first century church there. And so anyways, those are some things to be thinking about that we can apply to our lives. So we need to pray to be ready. We need to um, pray to bear fruit as well here. So now we're going to get on with some... some of these uh, these questions here that are coming up. I was trying to think of, uh, you know, a way to label these questions. I thought, part of me thought there's three or four of them, but I thought we could call these questions the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, they don't exactly go in that order, but there's a good one in there, and there's a bad one, and there's there's one that gets ugly, um, and then there's the profound question. I don't know, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the profound doesn't flow as well. But um, but anyways, we're going to look at a couple of these questions, and, and one of the things I, I want want to draw out even before we look at how Jesus handled some of these questions is is basically the fact that Jesus did handle some of these questions. Um, they, he sent some very hard questions. And you know what he does? He answers them. And, and I think in that is something for us to think about. I've noticed in some ways in this culture there's this moral relativism and what's right to you is right to me and who am I to give you an answer when you could come up with your own answer. And, you know, it's kind of confrontational um, to have an answer. But, you know, Jesus, it was the same back in his days, and he, he gave answers. He didn't say, you know... Now, occasionally, last week, Jeff shared a story where Jesus said, Hey, look, I'll answer that if you answer this. They couldn't answer it. And he's like, you know, so I'm going to leave that one alone. Uh, not that he couldn't answer it, but, you know, it might have led to things like him being crucified prematurely. And, and so he didn't answer it. But this one, he answers hard question, hard question, another question. And we need to be Christians who realize our, our Lord and Savior had answers. He didn't just say, wow, that's a great question. I just don't even think there's an answer to it. Oh, boy, we'll have to think about that one. Now he jumped right in and said, you know what, there is answers to that. And he, uh, some of the answers that he gave were straight out of this book. And if you're going to follow Jesus, you might think about having an answer and engaging on a hard question. Um, 
just like we're going to see here. So anyways, you know, on campus, with Tom Short was preaching a week or two ago, and one of the things that I noticed, you know, it's just crazy out there. People don't like him. He's preaching. He's sharing the truth. He's doing it in a, a loving, Christ-like way. And just people just swearing at him, doing all sorts of things. But one of the things that people were getting really irate about is that Tom... Uh, it gave the appearance that he had answers. And people were just livid. Livid. Uh, spell that right. Pronounce that right. Livid. And, and they would just go, I can't believe this guy thinks he's got answers. There's these questions. And who is he to say he's got answers? And you know, Tom, when he would answer a question, he'd say, it's right here. God has revealed the answer to that question right here. And people don't want to hear it. Because answers have ramifications. You know? There's things you got to do if you know the answer to a tough question. A lot of people just want to wallow in this. Well, I don't know. You don't know. You know, I was asking this girl, well, what do you think happens when you die? Well, I don't know. Jeez, but no one can ever know. I said, well, you know, that's why Tom's out there preaching and giving answers because he's got them. And you don't. Um, but we have answers. And, and yet having answers is probably something that's going to lead to trouble in this country. When you bring answers that are biblical, uh, that's not going to be a popular thing. You're not going to get a lot of you know, votes on American Idol if you give answers from the Bible to your questions. You know, you're going to have trouble in a lot of ways, but, but it's coming. The tide is turning. Anyways, let's look at this question here. Um, 13, we'll do uh, 13, just the first couple of verses here. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And then they went on with their question. What do you think they were doing right there? They were schmoozing him. They were flattering him. They were trying to puff him up. Um, Let's see, we got you know, obviously there's a, there's a point before we go on further here. Beware of using or being used by flattery. Beware of it. These guys came and they were just, I just, I can't even imagine how thick their speech would have been to Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus, you know, you are a man of, you know, and that was just a bunch of, you know, let's look at the definition of flattery real quick. What does it say? Flattery. That they're um, excessive and insincere praise, especially that given to further one's own interest. They were trying to butter Jesus up so that they could, you know, give him a fastball or something, swing one past him. You know, and um, I just think we have to beware of flattery. Flattery, sometimes we, we will use flattery with people. We'll say things that are nice, they appear really nice. You know, there's, there's nice things, there's encouraging things. And then there's over-the-top flattery, which is just, it's, you go back to the end of the line. That's not even as good as just saying something nice. It's not true. It's not sincere. Sometimes we can give the appearance of, oh, I think so highly of you. And in our hearts we're going, I don't even like you. I'm just trying to, you know, I just want to have favor in your eyes. When I go back to talk to my friends, I'm going to talk bad about you. You think the Pharisees and the Herodians really thought Jesus was such a man of integrity that he really spoke the the word of God in a truthful way? Do you think that's what they really thought? Uh, no, no, the answer is no. They were not, they were schmoozing him. They, they had worked this plan up and they just kind of glossed over it with this buttery flattery. But we've got to watch out for that. A couple verses on flattery. Let's see here, one is this. Um, In the end, people appreciate honest criticism far more than flattery. 
When you tell them just nice things, things you think they want to hear, you know what the reality is? They'd rather you shoot straight with them. Say, hey, you know, here's the deal. And, and that's a much more of a blessing. I think another proverb not in here that says, uh, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You're so amazing. Oh, you're doing so good. And uh, But they're just... You know, puffing. They were trying to puff him up, you know. And wounds from a friend. Someone who really loves you is your friend. Yeah, they might say some hard things from time to time, but you can trust them. An enemy is just going to multiply kisses and they're going to want to kill you on the other hand. You know, I think they were trying to flatter Jesus so that they could flatten him later with their question here. Um, We've got to watch out. Another verse. Um, Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for them. It's like you're setting a trap. You want to get something and so you kind of set up this nice flattery thing because it usually you're flattering them because of what you want to get from them, gain from them, something. You've got to watch out for it. Don't use flattery. If you don't mean to say something, don't. If you're just trying to puff someone up, don't. It won't do them any good. It could actually do them harm. And then on the other side of it, when someone's trying to butter you up, you know, don't, you know, Jesus could have been, you know, oh, you're a man of integrity. Yeah, tell me more. Please, please, no, stop. Stop, stop, please, you know. Um, no, he didn't do that at all. He knew whatever's coming out of their mouth next is a bunch of baloney. You know, they're just saying that. And let's look what came out of their mouths next. You don't respect people. You're a man of integrity. And here's what they said. So, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They're saying, look, you don't care what people think. You just tell what God says. And But what about Caesar? Is it right to give taxes? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, what does he go on to say? Um, this next verse here, he says, uh, But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and, and let me look at it. And what was the trap these guys were trying to set for Jesus? What was the trap? And you know, maybe you already know what it is, but um, what did the Pharisees think of the Roman government of paying taxes? They did not like it. They, in general, you'd say they, they hated Rome. They hated the concept that they had to pay taxes to the Roman government who was ruling their land, God's people, God's promised land. They did not like it at all. Now they did it, most likely, and, but they, they hated that idea. Now, um, on the other hand, the Herodians, they kind of aligned themselves and were favorable towards the Roman government. They kind of brown-nosed to being good with the Roman government. So, so there's two sides of the coin. They come together. Those groups don't even like each other, really, except when it came to, let's try to, let's try to do something together against Jesus. I think as, as we go on in the history of man here, you'll see that people tend to unite over the persecution of Jesus and his followers. Herodians and Pharisees were not real good friends, but they teamed up to try to stump Jesus. So, Jesus said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. What, what are the implications? The Roman government. Well, the Herodians would be like, hey, we've got a rebel on our hands here. He's a revolutionary, he's a rebel. He's telling us, don't pay taxes. And they'd have probably got the word circulated to the right authorities. And in no time, Jesus would have probably been lynched on a cross, just like a lot of other rebels in the Roman Empire. And so they're, they're hoping, okay, he's going to say, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Who cares about Caesar? Caesar's not God. But he, you know, and then the other side, the Pharisees are like, okay, well, um, if he says pay taxes to Caesar, what's gonna, what, what does that imply to the, the other side of the equation? 
they wouldn't like them. They didn't like taxes. They didn't like paying them. They were doing that because, you know, they, they figured they'd probably get thrown in jail if they didn't. But if, if Jesus said, yes, you're supposed to pay your taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees were ready to rally the crowds to turn the tide of the mob against Jesus for saying, you know, pay your taxes to your Gentile rulers, you know. That would not have been a good thing either. They could probably have stirred things up. They'd have probably got him crucified maybe a couple days earlier than God's plan. Either one of them was a trap, you know, and... Um, and what answer did Jesus choose? This one or that one? Well, well, we see that, that he didn't uh, specifically choose either one of them. And one of the things that I, I wanted to learn from this is just... Um, so we got the Pharisees. Uh, what do we got there? Trap questions. Um, one point is just beware of letting people force answers on you. They came up with this trick question. They said, Jesus, you got two options. One, either one is going to be bad for you. But they said, you know, we love you, you're such a good teacher, and either one of these options, you're going you're gonna to die, you know. Um, but we have to watch out when we're engaging with people and having questions. You know where I see this the most? Philosophy 101 on college campuses and universities. They come in there, they give you these trick questions, and they force them on these young students that are just getting there, that maybe haven't thought these things through yet, and they say, here's the deal, this or this, either way, there's no God. And we've got to watch out for that because it is all over the place. And I think of it a little bit like a, a card trick. You know, um, I've got to watch the clock. We've got to get a chat out of here. Um, but uh, how many of you know any card tricks? You're good with cards, play cards well, gamble more than you ought to. I don't know. Um, I've got a deck of cards here. This is Cars 2, the official you know, gambling deck here. Um, but I know one card trick, one trick only. But it's this one where you, uh, you kind of shuffle the cards, you let someone look at the card, you know, you kind of do your shuffle thing, and um, you, really what it is, it's called a force. And you kind of, you, you look at the bottom of the deck, you keep an eye on that, you know, I go, okay, this is Toe Mater number nine, and, um, and I'm going to try to force that on you. I say, okay, stick a pen in the deck. You stick your pen in, it goes wherever it goes. But secretly, though, the, the deck looks flat. It looks like a normal deck, right? Right? Uh-huh. Nothing behind this. Um, but what you do is you keep your pinky in the back here, and you have it marked on the card that you've already looked at. And so when they stick their pen in, wherever they stick it in, it doesn't really matter because you forced the card on them. Oh, this one's lightning between the wrong one. Okay. Um, but you force the card on them. And then you do this trick and you can throw cards in the air and you can do all these things. You go, is it this one? And I'm like, whoa, how did you know? Because I forced that one on you. It's a trick. You know, um, but, but a lot of times people are doing that with questions out there. They force you into one or two options and, and then they try to obliterate your faith from there, your, your logic, your rationale, whatever it is. And we've got to watch out for that, men and women. These philosophy professors and, and therefore pretty much everyone that you work with and gone to school with have been taught these tricks. And I don't think a lot of Christians have been given uh, a way out of them and around them. But Jesus, you know, he... Well, and one example I'll give you there is uh, the problem of evil. You know, it's one where they say, okay, God is all-powerful, right? And God is all-loving, right? But we see pain and suffering in this world, don't we? Now, if God was really all-powerful, He would stop that. But, um, but maybe he's not all-powerful. Or maybe he is powerful, but he just really doesn't love us. 
And so God, we see pain and suffering, so one of two answers, folks. God is either not loving, and He's just this, you know, uh, meanie, He's got the power to stop, but he, he just, He won't. He doesn't love us enough. Or, or God really, really loves us, but He's kind of just like this guy that can't do anything about it. Which is it, guys? Your God is just this weak willed, you know, with no power, or, or He's got the power and He's just cruel and He just doesn't want to use His power because He doesn't love you. That's the question as they frame it in philosophy classes right now and in debates. And, and um, what's the answer to that question? Is God one or the other? No, it's something they don't even throw into the question. It's, um, it's that God has given us free will. God loves us and God is powerful. And yet He's given you and I the ability to make choices that can bring pain and suffering and evil into this world. And is it God's deal? No, it's, it's our deal. Uh, we have free will. We're the ones that do this. And so they're not even, um, they're, they're framing it in a way to get you in one question or the other. And then from there they go, well, see, God's one or the other. So, you know, and then they take the next step. Well, you shouldn't even believe in God at all because he's, he's one or the other. But there's so many contradictions that we need to, you know, we need to be aware of. We need to be sharp with here um, because they're, they're just happening all the time. But, but anyways, um, what do we go? We're going to go fast and wrap things up here. Sorry, here we are. Watching our clock. Okay. Um, so anyways, we have this one here. What is the... So Jesus answered them. He said, okay, you know, he didn't really choose one of their two options. He said, let me see a coin. Let's take a look at this coin here. And then he asked them, so who's, who's on this coin anyways? Well, they said, Caesar is. And whose inscription? Well, Caesar's. And then, so he says... Um, you know, give give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God. Well, what does that mean practically? Pay your taxes. Yeah, Jesus said pay your taxes. You know, with the Romans, this righteous government that, you know, uh, boy, they're so good, we ought to pay our taxes. It just seems like the right thing to do. I don't think Jesus was saying that. Jesus was saying this is the government that is ruling in your world nowadays and you pay your taxes. Um, it's this coin anyways. Give it back to him. But then, you know, he says, give to God what is God. And you know, I mean, the heart of that is, um, if you and I are like a coin, whose image are we made in? Whose image is imprinted on us? We know we've been made in the image of God. And, and therefore, we belong to God. And we need to give our taxes to the government. And we need to give glory, honor, praise, worship to God. Give, give what is God to God. You know, back in the days, they used to try to... Some would say on some of these coins, it even said Caesar is God. Others I read that would say, some would try to get people to worship Caesar. Burn incense to him and say, Caesar is Lord. But you know what? Give to God what is God. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, in some ways, it would have been a slap in the face to, face to these uh, Pharisees and Herodians because the whole reason why they were paying taxes in the first place to the Roman government was because they were under God's judgment because they weren't doing the second thing. They weren't giving God the glory, the honor, the worship due Him. And that's why they were in the mess they were in anyways. But pay your taxes. Give your taxes to the government where they are due. Give your glory to God. Um, Let's see here. We're going to have to pick one of these and wrap up here. We'll do um, quickly on the bad question here. The trick question, the bad question. So the Pharisees came. Um, let's see. Make sure my clock is the same as you guys. What do you have? Ten, ten right now? Okay. We have five minutes to wrap it all up here. Okay. Um, so anyways, let's see. We'll look. 
the Sadducees came along. Sadducees said, there is no resurrection. Let's keep reading here, verse 18. Came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... um, the man must marry the widow. Oh, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife and no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married, died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow. He died also leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the women died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. We're obviously dead at the point he said that. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are badly mistaken. So Jesus says to frame in this question, he, uh, before he even engages with it, he just says, your question isn't even a valid question. You've got errors in the question you're trying to ask me, and he, he called them on it. And let's see here. Let's see if I through some slides. Uh, what do we got here? Where are we at? Okay, yeah. So, good God is God. Question more. So Jesus wasn't afraid to call them out on the errors in their question. We shouldn't be afraid either. When people ask a question that is preloaded with error or misinformation, you are not obligated to answer it. And you can even do like Jesus did. I'll give you permission. Dismantle their question like he did. He said, you guys are, you know, he went on to say, I said this is a bad question because he said, you guys are badly mistaken. You're in error in your question here. Um, and he said, you know, two errors, their, their errors came from two things here. He said they didn't, uh, is this going forward? There we go. They didn't know the scriptures and, and really in some ways, therefore, they didn't know the power of God. And action point to us, we need to strive to make sure we know the scriptures. Know the scriptures of God so that we can then know the God of the scriptures. Um, And we need to make sure we're sharp on scriptures. I feel like we're living in an age, a generation that is probably more biblically illiterate and ignorant than any generation in the history of the United States of America. There were times in the school system, back when the country was getting going, that you had to learn from the Bible. It was required. It was a book that you, you used to learn multiple different subjects from one book. And now, if you bring a Bible into the classroom as a teacher or a student, you know, it's getting close to where you're going to be shot or something like that. I mean, that's, that's a bad thing to do. But therefore, people don't know the Bible. When they ask questions on campus sometimes, I just go, where did you get that? Where did you hear that? It was fun to see Tom Short when he was preaching. He asked a couple people, he said, oh, I'll make you a bet about that one. You know, some people had the classic, the Bible says if you eat shellfish, you're going to hell. And Tom's like, where does it say that? And the student's like, it's in the Old Testament somewhere. Tom's like, I'll bet you $1,000. The Bible doesn't say if you eat shellfish, you're going to hell. And so they searched. They couldn't find it. I think eventually they texted Cha-Cha or something like that. I got the answer. And they found some Old Testament verse that talks about if you eat a fish that's without fins or scales and da-da-da-da, it's an abomination, which is basically saying, don't do it. Uh, it's not supposed to be in your diet. And it doesn't say shellfish anyways, but Tom said, you know, I'll give you $1,000 if... If you find it, he said, you give me $5 if, if you don't find it. And then Tom went on to tell a guy, you know, 
Donate your five dollars to charity somewhere out there. You, you lost a bet, buddy. Someone else wanted to make a bet too. They said, you know, there's a verse in the Bible that says if you judge someone, you're going to hell. Tom's like, show me the verse. And she found some verse out of the book of Exodus about God judging the firstborn in the land. And it was, it was really sad. But we need to make sure we're not illiterate as Christians. We have to engage in these tough questions. Um, one of the things I fear and we've got to watch out for is that with technology, with smartphones, with iPads, with whatever we got out there, you know, it's easier than ever. At the touch of a button, you can find a verse. But what happens when... You don't, uh, you don't have cell phone reception. What happens when power starts not happening so well? What happens when... I read stories of people that were in prison with no Bibles. You know what they did? They used like Morse code to tap on the wall and these different prisoners uh, alongside of each other in these uh, things would tap the verses that they knew through Morse code and together they would piece together as much of the scripture as they could remember from their heart. I'm afraid in this technology generation we've got more scriptures on our hard drive than we do on our heart. And it's a disservice to us. And we think, oh, we, we're a generation. We, we can look on, I'll, I'll be honest with you, my favorite website is BibleGateway.com. I'm on there all the time. But I think that as, as the world goes and maybe turns away from Christ, and if we face any persecution, you know, I don't think your, your iPhone's going to come in as handy as what you've got on your heart. Now, they're great tools. Use those tools to get Scripture on your heart. But be careful of becoming lazy with technology and becoming ignorant of the Scriptures of God. We need to watch out for that. Um, we're going to have to go ahead and close here. Uh, let's see. So, Jesus went on to answer the question. You know, I think in some ways it was like baseball. You know, the Herodians, the Pharisees were pitching at him, and Jesus took their question and he like knocked it out of the park. The Sadducees came and, you know, they brought in their left hander. You know, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in afterlife. They tried to throw a southpaw at him, knocked it out of the park, grand slam. Then there was a guy that asked the question, um, you know, he asked, what's the greatest commandment? I think this guy seems semi-friendly. He might have even heard Jesus give the answer before. I feel like it was kind of like our softball league. They gave Jesus this nice, slow pitch. Again, knocks it out of the park. Um, Jesus ends the whole thing by saying, hey, look, my turn to pitch. i got a question for you. You know, and he goes on to use the question about, um, so, you know, David said, you know, the... The, the Messiah was going to be his son. And yet at the same time, David calls him Lord. And let's see here. I don't know if I can get to that. Is it clicking and clicking along there? I'm just going to end with that. Um, okay. Can't there, there's a way you can fast forward to like a, the last slide or the slide before that. Is there a way to skip? Okay, there we go. You know, Jesus, right before this, he just says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Jesus asked him the question, hey, the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David. Then why does David call him Lord? How can he both be someone's descendant and son and yet be Lord at the same time? And you know what they said? But I don't have a clue. Um, he gave him this question. He put the ball back in their court and he stumped them. And, you know, I, I want to encourage us, when you're dealing with questions... Turn a question around on someone. Give it back to them. Uh, on campus, they like to say, you know, God, He brings all this. Most people say they, they don't believe in God. They deny God's existence until it gets to the question of pain and suffering, and they go, it's God's fault. It's like this double standard. Now, I don't believe in God, but any bad things out there, God did it. Um, well, what I asked one person was, well, what do you, so, so we know it. There's pain, there's suffering in this world. What's your answer? This one uh, atheist agnostic was really badgering Tom the first time. I said, what's your answer to pain and suffering? And the guy was like, you know, 
I don't know. Right now I'm on medication. And I was like, we've got a God who created this world perfectly. He's let us break it. He came into this world. He suffered in it. He overcame this world and death. He's coming back to take us to a place that has no more pain, suffering, and sin. And, and that's our answer. And it's a, it's a decent one. This world is broken. We broke it. God experienced it. He overcame it. He's taken us somewhere else. It's not going to be broken. It's not a bad answer. If your answer is, life sucks and I'm on medication, it's the only way I've got to cope. Men and women, we've got a better answer. Turn it around on them. You know, where are you going to spend eternity when you die? We ask them that a lot. Some of the answers they have are really silly. Reincarnation. I don't know. I got a science degree. It's hard to say. This girl told me, I think I'm coming back as a bug. I just don't buy it. You know, that's some. Turn the question back around on them and you'll find out we've got some good answers. We've got a Lord and Savior that, you know, it says that His foolishness, if God has any foolishness, is wiser than the wisdom of man. We've got a God we can praise. We've got a God we can ask for wisdom. And we need to do that. Um, and let's see, I don't know where if that's went anywhere in. Let's go ahead and pray here. Sorry, we cut it closer or maybe went over. All right, we'll pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we just, we just thank you that you are our champion. You are our Lord, our Master, our Savior. And we, we gladly follow you. We thank you that you're the God of all wisdom. We thank you that you answered hard questions. We thank you that you turned things around and stumped people with your questions. Lord, I think about how you just obliterated Job with 80 plus questions that he didn't even have the clue of where to start to understand the question, much less answer it. God, we just praise you that you have all wisdom in your hands. God, we thank you that you say you make it available to us. You say if you lack wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault. Lord, help us to have answers in this day and age where, where that's a controversial thing. God, we just, we just love you. Help us to, to be ready for anything that comes our way. We just pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming this morning. And uh, hopefully we'll catch you Monday night at the softball game. Uh, or if you're not on the team or don't want to cheer things on, we'll see you uh, Wednesday night right here for worship night. But thanks again for coming.